Hi, Chris Glynn here with the Nightlight Podcast. Today, joined by author and Middle East refugee relief coordinator, John Patrick. So good to have you back on the show, John. And thank you again for having me, Chris. John, your previous show, Victory in and Through the Great Tribulation, has been one of our most popular podcasts. Today, you're going to teach us a class on humility. Yes, I will try to. (laughs) Why humility? Why do you think this is such an important topic? Well, I guess for me in my personal life, I I knew the Word a lot. I knew the Bible. Got saved at the age of 18, been studying the Bible for some 40 years. And around 2015, life was going very good for me. Everything was blossoming, fruitful. And when that happens, it's easy to start depending upon your works and find your identity in your works instead of finding your identity in Christ. That's right. The Lord had to let me make some mistakes to show me it was all him and all others, too. You know, I was working with a team in the Middle East doing several programs. Yes. Somehow, the Lord led me to the book Humility by Andrew Murray. It was written in the 1890s, 1900s in South Africa. It was a subject he felt was not taught in the churches as much as it should be, or barely taught, he said. People, he felt, were not seeking after it. And when I read that introduction, I go, yeah, it's just, I never hear people talking about humility. It's a rare subject. Once in a while, you hear people pray for humility. Right. But when I read the book, I felt like each chapter was punching me, every chapter. Wow. It was just hitting me so hard and hit me so hard after all these years serving the Lord, 45 years, 40-whatever years, I felt it was a subject I had not grasped at all. I guess it's easy to be proud. Pride is just, it came in with with the fall of Adam, sinful nature of man. We're broken images of God at best. That's right. And pride can be a bit blind. Pride is such a broad spectrum disease. I remember once when I was in India, I had to take some worm medicine, and I looked at it and said, this covers broad spectrum medicine. And that's how pride is. It's like a disease. Mm -hmm. It can manifest itself in so many ways. Yes. So I think humility is the best medicine we can have against the lessened effects of pride in our life. So it came from a personal lesson. It's nightlight. What a delight. It's something I never realized until I read Andrew Murray. Humility was the key to our salvation. If you take a look at Philippians 2, verses 5 and 9... Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name. So that really hit me, that verse. Jesus humbled himself. Of course, he made himself of no reputation, too. If you look at his life, how he lived, no reputation. He continually humbled himself. But even he humbled himself, becoming obedient unto death. That hit me in the garden. Remember, he prayed, Father, if possible, remove this cup from me. He had to choose to die, and he chose the the most humbling of all deaths you can be, to be hung on that cross, you know, 
90%, 95% naked in front of the whole world, people making fun of him, people laughing at him. Right. He did that all for us. It's such a key for our salvation, humility. Thank you, Jesus. There's something about Jesus, too. Hebrews 5.8 said, even though he was a son, yet learned the obedience to the things which he suffered. That's right. I never fully understand that verse, but somehow by Jesus choosing to die on that cross, he learned full obedience, which would entitle him to become our sacrifice, take away all our sins, the sins of the world. Yes. As he is, so should we be in the world. Every opportunity he sought humility, he embraced humility, and we should be like that in the world as well. Amen. So it's a key to our salvation. He chose to die for us in the Garden of Gethsemane, and understanding our fallen state helps to humble us. So we really have to understand how fallen we were when Adam fell. He fell so far, and we've been suffering the consequences ever since. That's right. Jesus clearly said in John fifteen five, I am the vine, you are the branches, abide in me, etc. For without me, you can do nothing. nothing. And I don't think we fully grasp how nothing we can do. We always depend on some depraved greatness or something we think we have. You see many verses in the Bible brings out our goodness can only be found in Jesus or God. For example, Isaiah 64, 6 says, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are as filthy rags. So all of our righteous acts, the best things we do, God appreciates our good works, but they cannot save us. Only Jesus' precious blood. That's right. Jesus is our righteousness, nothing else. When we truly realize this, we're in awe and worship him in all humility because he saved us and loved us so much. Paul also said the same thing in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 29 to 31. That no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. So can you imagine, Paul had a lot to boast about. But he said, if you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. And many times, God's given us a lot of gifts. He gives us open doors, gives us wealth to help others. But we should have a very humble attitude about that. Jeremiah warned us about that in Jeremiah chapter 9, 23 and 24. Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord, which exerciseth loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. Yeah, I think there's a similar verse in James chapter 1. Every good and perfect gift cometh from above. And Second Corinthians 4, 7 says something very similar. Paul summed it up and said, Whether therefore you eat or drink, whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10.31. The danger is when we start taking credit for ourselves. We start patting ourselves on the back. That's pretty good what I did, this, that, and the other. And then slowly, pride enters in. But Lord wants us just to immediately give him all the glory for anything good. And there's zillions of benefits of staying humble. I think the number one benefit is it'll make you more like Jesus. He was the greatest example of humility. He told us in Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, 
and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I learned some good lessons about this rest, again from Andrew Murray, his book, Abide in Me. He talks about this two rest here. Come unto me, all your labor and heavy burden, I will give you rest. That's the first rest, salvation. We're freed from our sins. We know we're going to heaven. But there's a deeper rest that comes from abiding in him. It says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm meek, humble, and lowly in heart. You shall find rest unto your souls. That's the deep rest that you find, the peace that passeth all understanding. My, my peace I give, leave with you, my peace I give unto you. You find that only from walking humbly. I'd say that's another benefit of humility, peace of mind. Money and power cannot give you peace, but walking in a humble and meek spirit will bring that peace that passes all understanding. Bringing you peace in the midst of the storm. You're listening to Nightlight. Another good, good reason to strive for humility is to grasp the fact that God actually resists the proud. Can you imagine having God resist you? 1 Peter 5, 5 says... Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you, be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. So God gives grace to the humble. If you don't humble yourself, God will probably have to do something to humiliate you. And for me, I've seen sometimes God humbles me, then he humbles me again, and he keeps humbling me to make sure I've learned a lesson. Because uh, he wants us to be giving him all the glory. And when we live like that, it's actually more attractive. People are more attracted to Jesus when we're giving him all the glory. I mean, ourself, how far can we really take someone? But when we live for Jesus, his love is endless. To be humble is to be more loving. Humility and love are deeply connected. Without deep humility, your works of love will be as a tinkling symbol. They will not reflect the spirit of his love if you try to take credit for what he does through you. So a good reading on that would be 1 Corinthians 13, 1-7. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not love, it profiteth me nothing. Love suffereth long, and is kind. Love envieth not. Love vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Inspiring you to draw closer to God, you're listening to Nightlight. And another incredible benefit in humility is that God says he lives with the humble. Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, 
to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. So God says he lives in the humble heart. God who inhabits all eternity, all the universe. I think he actually prefers to live inside the humble heart. Wow, amen. Because that's relationship. And God desires relationship. That's right. David said something similar. Sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. So if you want God to be pleasing God, ask him, seek him for this broken heart. An incredible benefit of humility is we receive God's guidance when we're humble. Wow. When we're not humble, we're not desperate with the Lord. Thus we miss things the Lord tries to tell us, and we cannot be the blessing to others that we could be. When we're not humble, we're usually self-righteous, which makes us hard to live with. Often we're harsh, insensitive, and critical. That's right. All of which hinders our communication with others and with the Lord most of all. So Psalm 25, 9 says, The meek will he guide in judgment, and the meek will he teach his way. So the meek will he guide. Incredible. And I think for the days ahead, the way the world is now, and with all the responsibility God has given to his children, we need that guidance more than ever. Absolutely, we do. Humility brings freedom from fear. Those who are following God's spirit closely and are trying to emulate his ways don't have to fear losing their image because they're trying to make his image their image. The humble are not afraid because they've already accepted that they are nothing, that they know nothing and can do nothing without Jesus and the love and help of others. They know that they need Jesus and they readily acknowledge this. 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love. There's no fear in humility. The humble are set free from fear. Humility also brings unity. Humility is a key factor in answering one of Jesus' final prayers in John 17. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Beautiful verse. So for humble, we won't be critical of the other churches or the other believers or even the non-believers. We'll be truly seeking to save them, have the same passion that Jesus had for lost souls. It said Jesus, when he saw the multitude, he wept with compassion upon them. The perfect sample of humility. Jesus' sample of humility was continually serving others. I think Matthew twenty twenty eight says, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And as he is in the world, so should we be in this world, looking for ways to serve others. So how do we obtain this humility that we so desperately need? Well, a good way, I would say, is simply fall in love with Jesus. There's nothing more beautiful than to realize that we are nothing, that God is everything, and there's nothing that we can do to deserve this wonderful love. It just makes you want to love Jesus. Okay, listen, I'll outline a few things from Andrew Murray's book, and I'll just touch on a few things, highlights from a few chapters. Chapter 2 of his book said, Humility is our duty. He quoted the verse, Revelation 4.11. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. So we have our being by him. So it's our duty just to praise him and thank him. We would not be living. We would not have breath right now without the Spirit of God. I found chapter 4 beautiful. It's uh, entitled, Humility in the Life of Jesus. 
It says, listen to the words in which Jesus speaks of his relationship to his father and how unceasingly Jesus uses the words not and nothing when speaking about himself. It's a beautiful reading. You find it all through the book of John. 1 John 5.19 The Son can do nothing of himself but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. John 5.30 I can of my own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. John 5.41 I receive not honor from men. John 6.38 For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. John 7.16 My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. John 7.28 I am not come of myself. John 8.28 I can do nothing of myself. John 8.42 Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. John 8.50 And I seek not mine own glory. John 14.10 The words that I speak unto you I speak not of myself. John 14.24 The word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. Andrew Murray commented about this. He said, These words opened us the deepest roots of Christ's life and work. They teach that he became nothing that God might be all. Wow. As many times as I read the book of John, I never really caught that until I saw it like that. Yes, it's so powerful to see all those expressions of humility and dependence on his Father all together in one place. But just reflect upon the life of Jesus. Hmm. Look how he was born. Born in a manger. You know, it's been glorified since then, but the manger is filthy place where animals feed. And then as a child, he's a refugee. He had to flee to Egypt. Right. Then his life with his disciples. He said he had nowhere to lay his head. Mm-hmm. Think how he came into Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. You know, his final week. Not upon a white stallion, but a, a little donkey, a foal, a donkey, the humblest of all creatures. That's right. And in his death was absolutely humbling, mm-hmm. the way he died. The crown of thorns spit upon, mocked, and, that, and he was doing that all. What kept him? It was you and me. Thinking about you and me and all of us. Such love. He had the vision of us being saved, redeeming his bride. If that doesn't humble you, you know, that image burnt in front of your mind, your consciousness, I don't know what what else will humble you. But think of Jesus. Even on the cross, he was the ultimate example of other-centered love. He said, Mary, behold thy son, John, take care of John. John, take care of Mary. He goes, Father, forgive them, forgiving the soldiers to the thief on his side. Today you shall be with me in paradise. Isaiah fifty three twelve says, Jesus poured out his life unto the death. His whole life was just pouring out. We don't know much about the first 30 years, but he lived in a poor, poor village. Mm-hmm. His father was a carpenter. Mm-hmm. It was probably a simple, simple abode. Mm-hmm. So he was just the greatest sample of humility there is. Yes. Jesus never hardened his heart. He had compassion upon the multitude time and time again. He stayed tender quiet and humble, and he wept over them time and time again. He wept over the hardness of their hearts. The only way we can be patient with others is to know what a hopeless case we truly are ourselves, and we too need his mercy. Amen. It's the only way we could be merciful and, I would say, humble. I love this quote from uh, C.S. Lewis. It says, 
Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. That's a good one. Like some people think to be humble, we have to think less of ourselves, low self-esteem almost, this and that. But it's, no, it's not that. It's just think about yourself less. Always think about the needs of others, this, that. Oh, then the only way we can be thinking about the needs of others and serving others is if we have that deep relationship with Jesus because we never have the strength. This old saying goes, you cannot do the master's work without, without the, the master's, master's power. power. And the only way to get that power to serve others is to spend time with the master. That's the only way we, we can do that. That's right. So if you want to be humble, live like Jesus for others. Jesus, as Isaiah said, he poured out his soul into death. That is a path to humility, pouring out your soul in continual loving service to others. Okay, chapter 5 from Andrew Murray, Humility in the Teachings of Jesus. All those verses about whosoever shall humble himself as a little child shall be exalted. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He that is least among you, the same shall be great. Speaking to the multitude of disciples about the self-centered Pharisees and their love of the chief seats in Matthew 23, 11, he said once again, He that is the greatest amongst you shall be your servant. After the parable of the Pharisee and the publican in Luke 18, 14, Jesus once again said, Everyone that exalts himself shall be abased, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. You see this theme all through his teachings. If you lose your life, you will save it. You lose your life in service for me. Everything is worthless that is not pervaded by deep, true humility towards God and men. This is the path to higher life, down, lower down. This is the nobility of the kingdom of heaven, to humble oneself, to become the servant of all, from Andrew Murray. Okay, humility in the disciples of Jesus. We only find occasional examples of humility in the disciples. Mm. Once Peter said, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. But you don't see it too much. They're arguing who's going to be the greatest, this and that. Even at the Last Supper, when mm. Jesus was sorrowful, you can read in Luke 20, they're arguing who's going to be the greatest of all. That's right. And again, Jesus has to remind them after three years of teaching the same thing, that he that is the greatest among you must be the servant of all. So it seems like they didn't really get it until something special happened on the day of Pentecost. They needed the Holy Spirit, just like we. We need the Holy Spirit. We need Christ in us, the hope of glory, to live these things. The teaching is not enough. We have to have a personal relationship. Mm -hmm. Only by the indwelling of Christ Jesus comes true humility. John 14, 23 says, Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. That's all about relationship again. Uh, there's a quote, someone says, if you want to learn humility, get married. That's a good one. So, But if you really want to learn humility, get married to Jesus. Mm. Have him and the Father live in your hearts and strive to be like that. Yes. Okay, in the epistles, once the apostles had the Holy Spirit, they teach us about humility in our daily life. I chose four verses here, but there's dozens of these verses all throughout the epistles saying the same thing. 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you, be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Galatians 5, 13. For brethren, 
ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Romans twelve ten and 16. In honor, preferring one another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. And Philippians 2, 3. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Beautiful. We show how much we love God by how we treat those around us. That's where our humility is tested. Again, it's all in relationship. As we said in a previous class, relationship is our religion. It's how our religion is worked yes. out. Chapter 9 from Andrew Murray was about humility and sin. Uh, some people feel they have to keep sinning to be humble. Well, I'd say we make enough sins as it is without having to try to purposely sin. Our sins and mistakes, they keep us humble. Our mistakes can be our greatest teacher. Don't be afraid of mistakes. Embrace them. Learn all that you can from them. Paul obviously made mistakes. Look what he said in Romans 7.18 and verse 25. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank God for Jesus. It's the only way out of the mess of ourselves. And it's interesting, Paul has this confession here, but you notice in the apostles, he doesn't focus too much on his sins. He's just so busy getting out the message and serving others. And when he visits the churches, you can find verses where he said, he writes back to them, notice how we behave amongst you. You know, they try to be a sample, try not to take anything from the local church and be a blessing to them in every way. But Paul obviously had sins. I mean, 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10, talks about his thorn in the flesh. And he doesn't even tell us what the thorn in the flesh is, but it's something the Lord sent to keep him humble, lest he would have been exalted from all the visions that he had, the right. great work that he did. And it's interesting, he comes out and says, though I'm weak, through my weakness, I'm made strong. He just embraces weaknesses, I'm going to be made strong, kept going to God. Weaknesses kept him humble. David in the Old Testament, look at the sins he committed. And he had to have a great humbling, a great judgment. And eventually he had a great repentance. Therefore, God had a great forgiveness for David. And because he and God had a great love for each other in spite of everything, from this beautiful squeezing and twisting of his life, all the different things he went through, fleeing for his life several times, came forth the sweetness of the Psalms and the fragrance of his praise to the Lord for his mercy. It was all God and all grace and none of David's own righteousness. We have to remember, God only uses broken men and women. No others would do. Others are too self-confident in their own flesh. That's right. God has to break his servants, melt them, and mold them in the hands of the potter to make them a better vessel. But the breaking depends upon our willingness to be made willing to obey and to choose the path of humility. Inspiring you to dig deeper into God's Word, you're listening to Nightlight. So chapter 10 is humility and faith. And there's an incredible story in Matthew 8. 
verses 5 through 10. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion, beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come unto my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh, and to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Notice, this is the only place in the New Testament where it says Jesus marvels. Jesus marveled at the centurion's faith. He said, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. If you want Jesus to marvel, if you want God to marvel, show humble faith. It's interesting. It says in Galatians 5, 6, that faith worketh by love. And I think love is really synonymous with humility. The humbler we are, the more faith we have for God to do miracles. Wow. Also, in another place in Matthew 15, Jesus again marvels. And this is a very interesting encounter with a Canaanite woman. There are people who uh, criticize the Gospels for this. They criticize Jesus. And I don't think they're catching it. That's right. I think when you read this story in Matthew 15, you have to think of Jesus with, say, the woman caught in adultery. He says, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. The way Jesus was with women. Or John chapter 4, uh, the sinful woman who had five husbands living with another guy. How did Jesus treat her? I think with utmost tenderness and love. Even when he caught her lying, he says, it's true, the man you're living with now is not your husband. She says, I have no husband. The way he handled her made her into the first woman apostle. Beautiful. He treated her with such love, she ran to the city telling people, come and see a man that told me all that I had. If he had been condemning towards her, she would not have acted like that. That's right. So here we are in Matthew 15, Jesus is uh, traveling in Tyre and Sidon, in Lebanon today. Mm. A woman of Canaan came out of the coast, same coast, and cried to him, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. Jesus didn't answer a word. He's testing her. Test one. And he knows all about her, like he knew all about the Samaritan woman. And his disciples came and said to him, Send her away, for she cries after us. But Jesus answered and said to her, I'm not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I'm sure he said that in a very loving way. Test number two. I didn't come for you. And she, like the Samaritan woman, knew, like the Samaritan woman said to Jesus, Why, what are you doing here? Why are you talking to me? Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Uh, she knew that the Jews considered themselves a superior race, and they looked at everyone else as Gentiles and inferior towards them. Right. The Jews were God's chosen people. So he answered her, but then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. Now here comes test three, the ultimate test. And I'm sure she knew this from how the Jews were, and he's just quoting something how the Jews looked at things. He answers, It is not meat to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. What a test. Right. 
again reflecting the attitude of many of the Pharisees, the Gentiles are dogs. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure when he said this, he was looking into her eyes with love. She answers, truth, Lord, still calling him Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, O woman, and honor, great is your faith. Be it unto you even as you wilt. Again, Jesus marvels. O woman, great is your faith. So two times when people absolutely humble themselves, Jesus marvels. And interesting, both of them were non-Jews. One was a Canaanite Roman, one was a Roman. Wow, that's right. So Jesus here is setting the precedence that the gospel is for everyone, not just for the Jewish faith. I'm sure these incidents helped the disciples as they went into all the world, remembering how Jesus treated these people. Yes, it must have done. So that's humility and faith. Uh, chapter 11 of Andrew Murray's book is Humility and Death to Self, which you find Luke nine twenty four. Whosoever will lose a life for my sake, the same shall save it. John twelve twenty four and 25 uh, says, Except the corner of wheat fall on the ground and die, it abideth alone. There's only one path to humility, losing your life for his sake, burying yourself in a serious, like that corner of wheat in the story Jesus told in John 12. Humility and happiness, chapter 12. The truly humble are joyful due to their deep connection with Jesus. Things do not move them, as Paul said in Acts 20, 24. But none of these things move me that I might finish my course with joy. Paul had the vision to do his work with joy, even though it was so difficult. And Jesus said, uh, I spoke to you the whole gospel. I've told you all of this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. John 15, 11. In chapter 13, Andrew Murray talks about humility and exaltation. In the classic quotes, like, he that humbles himself shall be exalted, Luke 14, 11. James repeats the same thing in James 4, verse 10. So sometimes when we think of exaltation, it says, humble yourself and you shall be exalted. Just to clarify, exaltation is not the prosperity gospel that many pastors preach. That's right. It may not be a new position, a better job, a new car, etc., The greatest exaltation that anyone can have is to have more of Jesus. Amen. More of his spirit in our lives. That will give us the greatest peace that passes all understanding. It will give us joy unspeakable and much more. These are the true treasures of the spirit and the true treasures of this life as well. Material things can only momentarily satisfy. The gifts of his spirit satisfy ever. Remember, Moses chose humility. He could have been in the king of Egypt. But Hebrews 11, 25 and 26 says he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than enjoy the pleasures of sin, the pleasure of this world for a season. I mean, the greatest thing to know is to know Jesus. Yes. John 17, 3 says, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. And this eternal life starts right now. The moment you receive Jesus, you have the eternal life. It stretches all throughout your life and into eternity. Okay, that's from Andrew Murray. I I added a few things I found online. One I really enjoy was how to recognize pride and avoid it. And here's a few things contrasting pride and humility. Super, thank you. Pride focuses on others' failures. Humility realizes how far we fall short and we have an overwhelming sense of our need to grow. Pride can be self-righteous, critical, 
and fault-finding. Humility is compassionate and forgiving. Amen. Pride looks at their life through a telescope, but others with a microscope, finding fault in the others. Yes. Humility looks for the best in others. There's a saying that says, love is not blind, but it has an extra spiritual eye that sees the good in others, the possibilities that others have. That's right. Pride looks down upon those who aren't as spiritual or committed as they are. Humility seeks to win people, not arguments, and it realizes that only God knows a person's true motives. Pride thinks they know who's truly proud, and they are truly humble. Humility leaves the judgment of the heart in God's hands. Yes. Pride thinks everyone is privileged to have them involved. <laughs> Humility thinks they don't deserve the opportunities that God gives them. So, final, here's a little uh, quote from Todd Wilson, who wrote a book on humility, and here's how he defined it. I really like this quote. Humility is the capacity to view everyone as ultimately equal. This doesn't mean denying differences between people, but it does mean looking past those differences to the underlying equality of all people. There are two important senses in which we're all equal, as creatures made in God's image and as fallen creatures in need of God's grace. These two facts, in turn, are the foundation for true humility because they radically level the playing field. And thank you so much, John Patrick. And if you'd like to order John's excellent book, Triumph in Tribulation, you'll find the link below. John will be back with us very soon with testimonies from the aftermath of the huge earthquakes they had in Turkey. This is Chris Glynn signing out. And until next time, may God bless and keep you and make you a blessing. Bye for now.